Well, welcome to episode 18 of the Does and Does NBA podcast. We have been away for a couple of weeks again due to work commitments and other things that have popped up in life. But uh, Daz, firstly, how are you feeling? Um, life is good. NBA playoffs, less good. Yes. Well, I wanted <laughs> to, to sort of start off on that note and sort of get your temperature take, if you like, about the NBA playoffs to this point. Uh, because it's obviously been a little bit underwhelming uh, getting to this point. Obviously, uh, Golden State finished off the Spurs today in the sweep. Uh, Cleveland Levine lost once. And I guess I was thinking about it today, sort of in preparation for tonight's pod, and I thought, you know, there's probably three things that have defined the playoffs so far. And the first thing, and not to sort of piss in your pocket as a Milwaukee Bucks fan, but the... That Milwaukee game six, when Milwaukee are getting caned at home and like so many teams have just sort of let go of the rope at that point and just gone very meekly, Milwaukee staged this almighty comeback and very nearly pulled the game out of the fire. And they're probably the only team to this point that's really fought to the end. I mean, the Spurs thought as best they could um, with, with injuries, but... The, the, the lack of fight, I guess, the lack of pride that some teams have shown in the playoffs, and maybe it's a lack of belief, I think has been one defining feature. The other defining feature has been LeBron James and just how dominant he has been thus far, with the exception of one game, which the media just absolutely ripped him over. So it shows you the unrealistic expectations that we have of LeBron James at, at this stage. And the third thing is Kyle Leonard's ankle which defined very much the Houston series um, when he went there, and we'll sort of touch on that a little bit later on. And, of course, uh, the Golden State series, which I've got some thoughts on as well, as I'm sure you understand. But those are the sort of three things, I think, that have in many ways defined what's been a very underwhelming playoffs. But what's sort of been your take on the overall feel of the playoffs and what's sort of defined it for you? Well, I... um Sort of, it feels a bit back to the future, where I think I might have mentioned last time, and it's it's really come home. Even so, the last last couple of weeks was, you know, the the entire off season felt like it was just a a prelude to an eighty two game um, interruption between, you know, uh, Cavs Warriors Part Three, and then we had this amazing, pretty amazing regular season, some amazing storylines, and then whammo, here we are again. Uh, Golden State's gone the first Western Conference team in the history of the NBA to go 12 and 0 through the playoffs, and Cleveland could very easily have gone 12 and 0 if LeBron decided he wanted to give it his all. And I don't begrudge him at all, considering what he's done the previous 10 playoff games. And so he he took a game off and coasted, and I go, that's fine. I don't, I shouldn't. That doesn't bother me. It shouldn't bother any Cavs fans. It was just a night he didn't didn't have it for whatever reason. So. That's that for me is kind of these bookends where the 82 games turns out to be was kind of an interruption, and so that for me is the bigger theme as I get my head wrapped around the, you know, your comment and attaching it to this fight comment. I think you've probably seen and heard some of my my frustration just growing and growing. We see Chicago and Indiana just fold their tents when they had the first bit of adversity, and James Harden famously and publicly. You know, folds his tent and goes home, and the embarrassment that was Toronto um, in their complete lack of anything against against Cleveland. And then we saw the first two games 
Boston, you know, just sort of bowing out, just as, just as you said, this lack of fight, I think just underscoring the how the super teams completely devalued the, pre- the, the regular season this year. And then, you know, the teams who were great during the, the regular season now, well, yes, there's been some injuries with the Clippers and Spurs quite most prominently and, and Rajon Rondo, I guess. But um, the, the, you know, these middling teams now just having absolutely nothing, whether it's lack of belief or there's something bigger going on here culturally in the NBA with um, the guys preserving their bodies or their reputations. They want to go hang with their pals more than they want to actually, you know, get um, floor burns and win games and, dare I say, play a bit like Della Vadova for 48 minutes. Um, that, for me, has been the biggest sort of meta theme was here we are, 12-0 dubs, um, what's probably going to be an 11-12-1 sort of Cavs record in the Eastern Conference Finals with a whole chasm, an absolute chasm between those two teams and anyone else. So, yeah. Look, there's two things I'd say. So first is the touch on the injuries. I think that's been a real thing. Like Kyle Lowry goes down, George Hill goes down, Kawhi Leonard goes down, Isaiah Thomas goes down, Blake Griffin goes down, and the list goes on and on and on. Even Rondo, who you mentioned. The list goes on and on about players that just either weren't right in the playoffs or went down afterwards. But I think the bigger point is I think some of these teams and players have bought into the hype surrounding Golden State and Cleveland. And uh, once they once they sort of lose that first game, um, they just they just seem the belief just goes out the window um, that you, you can even possibly beat this team. So that's, and I, and I just get the feeling that teams went in not believing they could win any of those series. And so you thought, well, maybe we'll, we'll steal one game. And I guess the only team that really had that belief was maybe the Spurs. And once Kawhi Leonard goes out, then their belief evaporated as well. So um, that's what's been, I think, the disappointing thing. Just the fact that, you know, where's the pride of these teams that go in? And, you know, you remember back to those great Bulls teams and the great... Um, Western Conference battles that we had in those times. It was very few teams that would go into a series against anyone just with that lack of belief and just with, oh, well, you know. This, we're not even this is a new phenomenon, Dad. We don't even have to go back that far. So you're, you're bang on. And the, I don't think you have to go back that far, right? I mean, even when Kobe and Shaq were winning titles, I mean, every year it was sort of like an Indiana or Kids Nets or every year is like, man, they got a fighting chance, right? You sort of had the had a belief, and there there just wasn't this lying down. I just don't, I don't remember it. It's as starkly and as um, as almost systemically. That's why I'm starting to get. I'm starting to ask myself the question: Is there something in just today's NBA culture? To your point, like what what is it? Is it the fact that every other Mozgov is make on a seventy five million dollar guaranteed, and you know? Big Donuts, Al Horford's making 113 bills, and he's had a bit of a, a, a renaissance for a couple games. But you know, Fat Al Horford, Lamarcus Aldridge on 115 million. Is it question? Is it the giganto money? Is that part of it? Is it the fact they've all got business interests elsewhere? Is it the fact they can more so than ever choose with whom they play, and their camaraderie and mateship is more, I guess, more important than it was certainly when. Bird was fighting Magic and Jordan was fighting Carl Malone and the rest of it. And 
So that's what I'm starting to get my head around. I, I'm starting to worry that this combination of LeBron and KD can kind of just pick and choose where they want to play to collect championships, and everyone else is like, well, okay, then, well, fuck it. I'll we'll play with our pals, and I'll take care of my body and and just sort of mail it in. I I don't want to believe that this is a trend that will continue because at the same time, at the other side of my mouth, right, um, this is – can you think of a better year for, you know, NBA Coach of the Year? No coaches were fired. I think we'd list – we could probably list five to seven – genuine finalists for for coach of the year for the stuff that's gone on so the on-court product and some of the things that teams are doing is pretty impressive so i'm worried i think that some of the this the how widespread it is a bit of a concern um but i'm not ready to to sort of call this a uh i guess an adam silver sort of crisis but no um, i think it's more of a passing phase than the than the definite trend we're going to see. I mean, how the Warriors put that team together, and we've discussed this a number of times, it was a bit of an aberration. I mean, if Steph Curry's ankles weren't as dodgy earlier in his career, they're probably not in the position to make a run at Durant uh, last year. And obviously Durant and Westbrook sort of having that bit of a falling out, whether it was in OKC played into that. Um, LeBron has just been such a weak-minded superstar. He needs to build himself these super teams all through his career. That's uh, <laughs> that speaks to his persona, um, and that's a shout out to a long time listener of ours um, <laughs> as well. But I think it's more the worst thing you can have as a sportsman uh, is contentment. And I think a lot of these, probably in the back of their mind, they thought our ceiling this year is Eastern Conference Finals, our ceiling this year is making the plus, our ceiling this year is second round plus, etc. And once they got there. They're just like, well, we've reached our ceiling. Anything else here is gravy. You lose game one, and then you go, okay, well, we're not beating this team. Let's start thinking about Cancun or Banana Boats or whatever else they want to do in their off-season. And that that was sort of the end of that with a lot of these series. So that's what yeah. I sort of think. I just think they bought a lot of these players and teams bought into the narrative of it's going to be Cleveland and Golden State. There's not a hell of a lot we can do about it. And then, and I'm, I think that's probably a very fair framing. And I, I then run to, there's some teams that really need to examine their cultures and I guess what they're made of. And I think you, Masai Jiri said it very presciently after that series. I was so pleased, right? I, I sometimes think that you know, I, checking my own biases to, you know, about the Bucks in Toronto probably being the most interesting series in the whole playoffs. Um, so far, and then Masai sort of calling it out, saying, "Yep, we might have to. We might have a culture change in our hands here." So he did not like how his team failed to fight as well. So um, there'll be a number of teams with various different sort of examinations, I think, to go through. Oh, I agree. I mean, look, well, that's that's probably a good way to go back. And, and when we last spoke, we had two series that were two all. Uh, Utah were down three nil. We sort of had conceded that series already for them. Not surprising, they went out and lost game four as well to Golden State. Cleveland had already swept the wraps, but we had a very interesting series in the East in the Wizards and Celtics. We'll probably start on that one before getting to the more interesting finish of the San Antonio-Houston series. And in that series, uh, the, the Celtics-Wizards, Celtics came out game five, hit a heap of, heap of threes, 
uh, won that very easily. I, I watched most of that game for the Wizards were terrible. It was just a, a inexplicable performance from them in many ways. Sleepwalking. Yeah. yeah, and then they came out and sort of pulled game six out of their backsides, and you thought, well, maybe they've got it. It, it always felt through the series they were the better team. They just never quite clicked into gear. And to Boston's credit, they kept fighting, and uh, they're, they're that sort of team when they're making their threes, as we saw against Cleveland yesterday. They can be a very difficult team to beat, and they made enough shots in that series. Kelly Olenek, of course, was quite big, ticking game seven hitting some big shots down the stretch. Isaiah Thomas wasn't at his best, I, don't, I think it's fair to say, through the series, but Boston just had enough firepower in the end and enough depth in the end. I mean, four points off the bench. When we first spoke about the Wizards, many, many pods ago, probably episode two it would have been, we questioned their bench. Uh, and that's exactly how it happened. But whether it was that their bench played bad or there's been criticism of Scott Brooks not playing their ben- the bench enough in that game, uh, they didn't exactly play a lot of minutes either. He sort of rode his uh, starting five really hard in that game seven and they seemed to wilt a little bit down the stretch. So I'm not sure if it was the fact that the bench weren't playing well or Scott Brooks sort of lost confidence in them. Um, that was a deciding factor. But how, how did you sort of see how that series played out? But almost as you said, which is um, there's a theme we've talked about quite a number of times, right, with um, our this little fictitious um, thought experiment. <laughs> if you come down from Neptune and watched NBA basketball, your perfect five is either going to be the, the L.A. Clippers starting five or Washington Wizards starting five, in, in many ways the most perfectly classically aligned NBA starting fives. And ironically, both those teams have terrible benches, which came back to haunt both of those. So in spite of Boston's, you know, Doughboy Al Horford, who I like to pick on and their, um, their, their dwarven dynamite, you know, being, being more exposed, right? I think that was a precursor to what's been happening with Cleveland and Isaiah obviously got a bit hurt, but I think Isaiah was getting exposed by Wall and Beal and, you know, can't hide him on Otto Porter. You can't even you can't hide him there. He's going to get torched. So, in spite of all the shortcomings of Boston, lack of rebounding, lack of toughness, um, lack of size, um, their their fantastic depth carry them. Um, I loved what I saw from John Wall. On the other hand, I think all season long I thought Washington was the second best team in the East, and I thought they'd be the most likely challenger to Cleveland. Uh, just the depth. The depth wasn't there, but I got to say, if I'm if I'm a if I'm a Wizards fan, I almost had bullets. Um, still slips out every now and again. I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. I got to say, they you know they didn't have any injuries. Um, Wall and Beal uh, look like a phenomenal backcourt. Otto Porter's lifted his game. I think Gortat is going to be an interesting one. There's probably something to think about. Is he is he the right fit? You know, at the five, um, maybe he's better. You know, better off playing the um, the tough guy role in a Golden State or something like that. But um, I think their futures. I think their their future is probably brighter than it's ever been. Is it going to be enough to hold off um, the the unicorns in Milwaukee or or something? I'm not sure. But um, uh, yeah, I think that was a. It just. I think Boston just made a couple more shots in Game Seven, and it was made by you know goofball Olinick. That's really what that came, that really came down to. They ran out a bit of the gas. 
at least Houston didn't collapse the way, sorry, Washington didn't collapse the way the Rockets did, but um, they ran out of steam. Yeah, if you want to be fair to the Wizards, I guess the, that start of the season, going 2-8 and eight to start the season, that really cost them in the end because it cost them a chance at the one seed. If they had started even 4-4 four and four there, they're right in that conversation for the one seed. And if you have home court against Boston, or even as it probably would have been against the Raps, um, you'd be much more confident about coming yeah. out of that series and at least going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I think from what we've seen, they're not going to beat Cleveland in this season, but whether they're building towards a run at Cleveland next season, if LeBron does sort of well, slow down, who knows? Well, that's the this is now, sadly, the unknowable thing, is that I, boy, I'd like to believe that Wall and Beal could inflict some damage on Kyrie and whomever. So that's where I think where Cleveland can be exposed, right, is that when there's a a dynamite with to defend so much harder on the wings um, with two really great playmakers and especially off a guy who can just create anything. John Wall's game, did, am I crazy? Did John Wall lift his game this playoffs? He almost had a Kyrie-like, I think, step up in his game is what it felt like, like Kyrie last year. I think John Wall has kind of cemented himself as a, hey, I'm the second or third best player in the conference Sort of conversation. Yeah, well, it's definitely so a tougher matchup for Cleveland, and, and if that's what I thought, yeah, have had yeah. a home court throughout, then it becomes that little bit more tougher again. So it could have been a six-game series, but I, I find it hard to believe Washington would have actually beaten them. I just think it would have been a tougher agreed. Than what agreed. Boston. I just don't think. I think yeah, we saw Boston's fluky game three win here. I, I just think Cleveland would have actually had to work. I think they would have really had to work. Um, against against Washington, but mm. we don't know. Yep. Well, let, actually, why don't we talk about the, the Boston Cavs series quickly now. It's 2-1 to the Cavs. The Cavs embarrassed, to put it mildly, the Celtics in the first two games of that series. Um, game two was one of the worst performances, I think, in living memory in the conference finals, down by 50 at home. Um, and they, to their credit, they came back, made some shots, come back from 22 down to win game three. But uh, uh, to your point just then, I, I can't see a path where Boston uh, win this series, let alone even win another game, to be honest. Um, when you're relying on Marcus Smart hitting seven three-pointers in a game of basketball, that doesn't really feel too sustainable from my point of view. Well, it sounds like Isaiah... Isaiah's out, isn't he? Is he hurt? Yeah, he's done for the season. So he's done right. That hip is a that's a bit of a worry. So there's just they don't have any firepower now. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't think there's much to add here. The the gap between <laughs> the number two team and the number one team in reverse order is is vast. Um, mm. Which for, so for me it becomes more. I can't get. I'm just so interested in what um, with the conversation about resting players and all this sort of stuff linking to the total devaluation of the regular season by Cleveland. There's no mystery if Cleveland played with half this intensity for you know January, February, March, and April, they'd have won 65 games. 60, 65. Yeah, pick pick your number. Why LeBron James was playing so many minutes? In the regular that's the, season, 
that's the befuddling part. That's the that's the that's the variable I can't figure out. Yeah, it, it just that that to me is, is mind-boggling. I mean, if they hadn't gone through the way they did, and LeBron's playing twenty-nine minutes a game, you go, okay, they're sleeping yeah. through. They're just making sure the plus. He's playing. You know, he. Well, I don't know what he ended up averaging. It was close enough to forty minutes a game. Certainly high thirties. And you just think, why is he putting this much miles on the well, body? Well, I know the why. I think I answered quite violently. I think he wanted to win the MVP. But I, so for me, that was a pretty easy well, he's not cause and effect. So that mission, well, mission. But well, that's why. Right. The other, the mystery though is why they weren't winning games when he's playing forty minutes a game. So I go, is that is that his teammates? And then I go, is that some? Is there something brewing there, right? Or is that just part of their deal? I, I don't. I don't know. I think know. they're a team that needs a sense of urgency to play well. So I think they're a team that when when the, the chips are down and when the spotlight's on, that's when they'll turn up. Um, you know, when it's a regular season game in Sacramento and, you know, they're not on national TV, it's a normal broadcast, and that's a game where they're just going to sleepwalk through. Um, LeBron's not built that way. He doesn't sort of sleepwalk through too many games. He's actually more likely to sleepwalk through a big game on, on occasion, like he did <laughs> in game three. Um, it felt like 2010 a bit, didn't it? Yeah, yeah well, he it was just... LeBron will just occasionally put in... The, it, it, to be fair to him, he hasn't done it for a few seasons now, but no. just out of nowhere you see a game like that, and it's just stark, I guess. That's why he sort of gets belted so much for it. But uh, in the regular season, he generally brings it every night. But some of his teammates, I mean, Kyrie tries maybe two possessions a night on defense on a good night. Um, and, you know, the rest of the guys just sort of take it as, as it comes, particularly on the defensive end. And that's why they were so poor, um, you know, a 500 record for the, the, the second half of the season. So I think there was certainly reasons to be concerned. But as, as we kept saying in this pod, you got to keep in the back of your mind until we see someone actually beat this Cleveland team in the East. It's hard to believe it's going to happen. Uh, and when the playoffs come and there's a sense of urgency about their game, none of these other teams are it, in the same discussion. Yeah, look, I think maybe that's the, the final I'll say on is that remember there's this, this grain of cynicism with the conversation that actually being the number two seed in the East this year was the only way LeBron what's going to kind of create an us-against-the-world underdog mentality. It's like they almost needed to dig their own hole to dig to climb their way out of it because they're better at climbing out of holes than, than they are front runners. Mm. And that we can, you know, we'll, the history books will forever look back on the 3-1 deficit last year against the 73-9 and team and the number of dollars that flew into Las Vegas, which would have been quintuple the amount even that flew into – you know, to um, back at the Atlanta Falcons when they were up 28 to 3, right? In the most improbable way. So I kind of go, that will forever carry them until his retirement, that you just ever, never, ever, ever count him out. And in fact, when they're down, they're probably actually most dangerous. Well, Miami was so, the same. Miami were down in every single playoff series the first year they won the title. Uh, and they, of course, went down again to the Spurs. And I believe they were down to the paces as well that year. Um, the second year they won it. They were consistently putting themselves behind the eight ball, down 2-1, not playing well, and then they pull out three unbelievable games in a row. So they sort of... And that's what we talk about, the on-off switch. 
that LeBron yeah. does have. And yeah. LeBron doesn't seem to have it individually with his performances. It's just his teams have it. And I, I, it would be interesting to sort of dig deeper if you could into the psychology of these teams and why they're sort of built that way. Um, and they do sort of slacken off until it's time, okay, now it's time to come through. Yeah. In yeah. Life, so. Well, I, well, I think let's. I think we'll leave it on. I think Game Three was a, a supreme aberration. I think you'll see Cleveland win by twenty or thirty again in Game Four. I think that's probably where all the good money's at. But if it doesn't, then uh, I still won't be thinking much of it. I still think Cleveland will win in six. Oh, look, even if so, back to <laughs> two, two. I mean, you know, you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't give Boston much hope, but. No, um, no. We'll talk more, obviously, about Boston a bit later on when we when we touch on the lottery. Yeah, and we'll preview the finals when when we actually, I guess, formally have it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, we'll, we'll move the Western Conference, then we might touch briefly on what, what the inevitable finals result will be. So if we we go back to the Rocket Spurs, and neither of us had much of a feel about what was going to happen in this series. Um, and then we got one of the most inexplicable games I've ever seen, Game 5, uh, where Houston came out, and it was a Houston game. We, we spoke about this on the last pod. You know, pace was so important. And for the first two and a half quarters, it was Houston's pace. It was just a, an absolute shootout. I was very worried watching the game live. And then halfway... But then it became very clear early on that the Nene injury had really affected Houston. And Reggie Miller actually made the comment. He said, Nene being out is probably the, you know, equals it out from Tony Parker being out. And I sort of, you know, uh, had a bit of a chuckle about that. I thought, how ridiculous. Their eighth man is the same as losing a point guard. But as it turned out, it was probably more important because for whatever reason, for reasons that I will never understand, Mike D'Antoni decided to go with a seven-man rotation. And you could just see Houston wearing down as the game went on. And I remember I was messaging you back and forth during the game, and Houston were up 10 uh, midway through the third, and I said they need to hold this lead to three-quarter time because they are going to tire. And almost as soon as I made the comment that they started short-arming threes, the sloppy turnovers came in. Now, fortunately for them, Kawhi Leonard uh, tried... uh, inadvertently trod on James Harden's foot and twisted his ankle. So he was hobbled for the last quarter and a half of that game. So that sort of affected the Spurs' offence. So a game that had actually been really high-scoring and in a good flow, the fourth quarter became a real rock fight. It was ended up 16-15 to 15 to, the, to Houston uh, after the Spurs led by one going into the last quarter and went into overtime. And over time, just took a similar trend. Houston just could not execute at all down the stretch. Uh, and then uh, Danny Green made some big shots for the Spurs, including his only and one layup of the year. And then Marnie had the great block on Harden to finish the game. But uh, my sort of immediate takeaway was that that was loss was 100% on Mike D'Antoni. I know James Harden copped a lot of criticism for how he ended the game, but I just thought it was an inexcusable decision to go with a seven-man rotation um, in that spot. And I'll get your thought, thoughts first on, I guess, game five, and then we might touch on on uh, the debacle that was game six for the Rockets. Yeah, so I was at work and following it online, and then 
I noticed, I noticed what you did at halftime. I'm like, oh God, it looks like a seven man rotation. And I watched myself a, a grainy version in the second half. Um, look, the, I was probably as, um, again, you know, my history of Dan Tony, Steve Nash, love and my, I guess maybe just the appreciation for the style of play. But I was equally screaming, screaming at the computer for a um, a Sam Decker eight minute run or a Montrez Harrell, Montrezl Harrell, Montrez Harrell. Har- Har- <laughs> M, I poor, I poor M Harrell. I was, I was begging for a seven minute stretch. Right, go a bit big. Right, bang some bodies, crash the boards for a while, give a blow. And, but it never came, right? So even I, of the great, a great Dan Tony um, supporter, um, knew exactly what was happening. I've since come to appreciate from game with the seven man rotation and, and the inevitable exhaustion that comes with it, particularly with a team where, unlike what Steve Nash had, because um, uh, Steve Nash actually had some defenders on his team, um, but so much happened. Like if James Harden stops, the whole play stops, right? It's like when you have so much pressure and so much of everything dependent upon the decision-making of of a single player, um, that's part of where I sort of kind of go, I've come to appreciate taking players out of games, and I've mentioned to you before, right? I I even have to go back a long time to my competitive playing days, but I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to come out of a game. And I know that the NBA players give slightly more effort than, you know, white kids in Wisconsin do, but the mentality is the same. And I've, I heard about this. I think they talked about it on, I don't know if it was the ringer or Woj or something, but if you think of the specific conversations around that coaches have with their players where James Harden hates, he hates coming out of games in the first quarter. He loves to play the entire first quarter. Yeah. And so what you and I do not see is that that relationship a coach has with their superstars and just the almost impossible. So I'm actually giving I'm giving Dan Tony, yes it's him, he's the coach, he makes the decisions, but it's not so black and white, right? It's not so black and white to say, "Hey James, I want you to sit the final 3 minutes of the first and the first 4 minutes of the second." And guess what? James isn't going to like it. It, and it fucks with his head. It fucks with his rhythm. I'm telling you, right, a guy who shoots the way he does and the way he feels out and anticipates PNR defense the way he does it, he just he needs data. He needs trials. He needs to run plays to feel like he's got got some game. It is. It, there's no question that they ran out of gas. There's no question that their legs were going. Um, they were shooting the step back threes. They're getting into one little action and shoot and fade away, you know, step back threes with 18 seconds on the shot clock. And, and you know what? That's okay. Over, over a large number of trials, right. With, with Maury ball, but that's not okay in a game, right. In a game five, a critical, critical game five. And it's not okay to do it, you know, four out of seven possessions. Right. And that's where I put, I do place the, the blame on Dan Tony to not call different timeouts, to not try a different combination of players, to not try something 
um, to not have a sense or a pulse of the team that, you know what, you could feel it slipping away. Because the planet, right, the planet felt that game slipping away. So I guess all those things perhaps need to be true. They were exhausted. They ran out of they ran out of gas. But I think it's a little more nuanced than perhaps we appreciated when I started to hear about how Harden absolutely fucking hates coming out of games. Um, and D'Antoni, I guess, believed his, this was his best path to victory. And look, game five was close, right? Christ went to overtime. Whoa. One shot, one shot goes in, right? And and he, we're not having this conversation. They might have very well lost Game Seven, but we don't have this specific. Has he? Did he ride his his players too hard? Well, I guess conversation. To your point on Harden in Game Six, they ended the first quarter, which Harden played all of the first quarter. They ended up that down seven, and Harden sat for the first few minutes of the second quarter. By the time Harden came back in, they were down 19. 19. It was, yeah, that's right. It was 14 to 2 run. 14 to 2 run with Harden on yep. the line. So, yep. And Harden copped a lot of criticism, to some extent, rightfully so, in, in game six. But that was sort of overlooked a little bit. I mean, they were still, there was 31 24. Spurs had made some shots in the first quarter. You say, okay, we take that. But by the time Harden checked back in, they're down 19. So now what's he supposed to do? So. But where I would be critical of D'Antoni is, and I liken this series to, I used to watch Friday Night Fights on the ESPN for many years, and the amount of times I saw this particular fight where you've got, you know, the, the, the quick boxer that's got the beautiful face, and he says, ah, oh, no one's even going to touch my face, and he's too quick, and then the old pounder that just keeps pounding him in the ribs the entire fight, and then the bell goes for the eighth round, and the pretty boy can't get out of the corner because his ribs are broken and he's spitting up blood. And you think, well, I haven't seen him take a punch the whole game. What's going on? And that felt like James Harden in this series, because people were like, why is he so tired? Well, I'll tell you why he's so tired. Because Pau Gasol, David Lee and LaMarcus Aldridge were backing him down hard in the post, time and time again, particularly in the first quarter. They were just bashing him. And to Harden's credit, and we touched on this. He, I mean, his closeout defending was atrocious again the whole series, but his post defending was quite good. And that's where I thought it was a failure of Dan Tony to just watch that happening game after game and say, this is my most important offensive player, and they're wearing him down before our eyes. And when the bell came, you know, halfway through the second quarter in game six, he had nothing left. And... We saw that. I mean, even when he was taking shots, they're short. He just didn't seem to have his legs under him. Um, so that's where I thought there was a failure of Dante to say, okay, let's let's do something defensively, which I know is against his his mindset to maybe even mention the word defense, but let's do something to get James Harden out of those situations where they're just backing him down the post and he's getting tired. Did you say the same thing? Well, yeah, I was commenting, and that's I was... I think you and I were commenting in real time. I'm like, holy shit, four consecutive possessions. And if I'm not mistaken, San Antonio wasn't scoring. I'm like, holy shit, they're switching off. And Powell and Marcus are doing Charles Barkley ass into his chest. Mm. And Harden's actually battling. I go, holy shit, that's kind of cool just to watch him battle. Because, um, right, his lateral quickness on defense isn't there, which is tied to his effort. But you throw an ass into him, he's like, fuck you, mate. So um, I was kind of, I kind of, that was I kind of like that. Yeah. On that. The point that came out of it was the Spurs weren't scoring in those positions. I don't know the exact figure, 
but it wasn't. They were less than one point per possession when, or they might have been one point one or something like that. Anyway, whatever it was, with Aldridge in the post, and they actually someone said to Zach Lay, well, "Why they keep running that play? They're not scoring well on it." And he said, "This is pop. This is not about the Spurs scoring. This is about slowing James Harden down." And yep. that's where Pop, in the chess match side of it, just got the better of D'Antoni again. Because, you know, what's the move for D'Antoni? Maybe it is going with a Harrell and just saying, look, we're not going to let them dominate down low against Harden, particularly early in these games, and slow him down for later on. Um, that's where I felt like Pop won the tactical battle to just say, OK, because D'Antoni's sitting there going, yeah, I, I don't mind these post-ups because they're not scoring on them. And you know D'Antoni doesn't like to post up in general in basketball, so he's probably not that worried about the fact that they'll post him up but not understanding or maybe just not reacting yeah. well enough to it to what was actually happening. Look, I'm I'm probably gonna omit names, but just but I'm gonna say three. John Simmons, Kay Olinick, and Powell. These are every single playoffs. There are guys named Jonathan Simmons, Kelly Olenek, and Norm Powell, who come up huge and almost single-handedly win critical, critical playoff games. And I, I you know, this is what he's going to have to live with. D'Antoni's refusal to try uh, M. Harrell or Decker, not saying they would, but I'm not saying they wouldn't either by them giving guys a breath. Maybe Patrick Beverly goes crazy because he gets an extra 10 minutes blow or something, right? I'm just saying... That's got to be something that, unless you, you build a, a Celtics-like roster where you can literally go 10 deep and you don't have any really any difference in your, in your um, I guess, your execution. But to not trust your players, that also sends, so at the same time, balancing you know, these commitments and these very delicate relationships you have with, with, with James and Ariza about playing time, who never want to come out of games, you also have the trust you're trying to build and the confidence and self self belief in guys like Harrell and, and Decker, you know, to say, you know what, we can do this. Why can't we be Olenek and Norm Powell and John Simmons? And so that's the that's the art of fucking coaching, right? Where I go, he's gonna he's gonna cop it and he's gonna cop it hard, um, and deservedly so, because we because of how they went out in game six. And um will he learn? Well, I know, is, or is he Phil Jackson? He's just going to shove the fucking triangle down his throat. In 2018, he's got another seven-man rotation. No, he shooting won't. Shooting 60s. He won't. No, he's, he is who he is. Tibbs yeah. is the same. Yeah. I mean, you, you thought maybe Tibbs learned some lessons from Chicago, and then you go and look at the box scores. He's, the same, and he's doing the exact same thing. So yeah. you know, he's got a younger team. Maybe he'll get away with it a bit more. But in today's NBA, I just cannot understand the mentality behind eight-man rotations. I think it's an organisational failure if you've really got players on the end of the bench that just aren't good enough. Well, if they aren't good enough, why are they on your roster? So that's either Daryl Morey's fault or it's Dan Tony's fault for not developing him. Um, you know, who knows? But- Sorry, Harold and Decker had stretches, not just games, but stretches of of competent, impactful, you know, second-team Second unit, sorry, not second team, second unit um, NBA basketball. I know because I had them both on my fantasy teams at some point. I'm like, hey, is Montrez doing another 11 and 7? I'm like, all right, good one. Yeah. Right? They're comp- competent. Go, go play. 
right? Well, and Decker anyway. came out and hit his first two shots in game six, and you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah. who knows? If he comes out and hit his first two shots in game five, they're probably three two up. Because that's maybe you never needed. You never know if he'll become the next Mirza Toledovic if you never play him. That's right. right. Yep. So, the dude will get a shot. So, look, it's funny that we're – I can't believe we haven't talked about this. It feels like that was a month ago, doesn't it? But um, mm. um, I, I'm – I don't know. I think Shea Serrano said it best with the game six with what happened to Harden. Is you're right. They went on a 14-2 to two run and he came back in and he might have just said, fuck this. Um, and for some reason was trying to be the petulant – I don't know. It's like he was pouting to the whole team doing lazy passes and over the shoulder and just he, he literally either snapped lost his mind self-sabotage something right like well, james so harden this, cont- yeah he does not want to see jonathan simmons again in a long time because oh look he played defense you're right jonathan it. simmons he did he dug his heels in which was which was great and i go so there's that's a factor right but when you're talking the likely MVP, you'd say, okay, that's a factor. But why was it a factor on, you know, literally 15 consecutive possessions rather than, you know, 10 out of 15 or, you know what I mean? Like it was, shouldn't have been absolute abject shutdown. Harden was tippy-toeing, tap dance, lob. Oh, anyway, we all know the performance. So he'll cop it. And rightfully oh, look, so. I think, don't, don't discount how much fatigue affects your decision making. And a big part of what James Harden's about is his decision making, his, his IQ. And he just looked like a guy that was tired to me. Done. Had yeah. Worn down. Not used to playing. That's that's Worn the, down. Down by 19 points. That's right. And in an absolute junkyard dog, Jay Simmons in your fucking jock every single possession. Yeah, it's fair enough. It's it's fair enough. It's. um. Yeah, so, so that's, 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 the, that's the postmortem. On, on yeah. James Harden, yeah. believe it or not, <laughs> the matter what you are in that game. For the, there's a first time for everything. Um, then we sort of moved on to the Western Conference final. So you can sit back for a little bit, Daz, and uh, grab a cup of coffee. Do whatever hey. you need to do, and let me have a little bit of a rant about what happened. Uh, We're going to talk about. There. You're not going to talk about Zaza, are you? Uh, he may come up. He may come up. Look, okay. I'll give you no. the rational Spurs fan point of view because I've seen some irrational actions. I mean, I, I don't think I'll be taking the Warriors to court or making social media threats to Zaza's family. I'm not, I don't, not quite that that uh, been out of the shape about it. But uh, so Spurs going the Warriors. Look, I thought the Spurs had a a reasonable chance. I thought I thought they could certainly push the series out. I didn't think they'd win, but I thought they could make a game of it. Uh, or make a series of it, if you like. And they came out and just kicked the Warriors' ass from the first minute of Game 1. Just jumped on them, put their foot on their throat, and didn't let them go. And then Steph Curry, now they were up by 20 at half-time. Steph Curry comes out in the third quarter. He starts hitting shots, and you think, okay, here comes the comeback. And then Kawhi takes over the game. And... What Kawhi showed me in that game was he has another level that we haven't even seen yet. He was up to 26 points with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. Uh, the Spurs were up 23 at the time there. He had just tweaked his ankle just before that, um, after he hit a three and sort of 
stepped back into his own bench, which was pretty inexplicable in itself. Uh, and then, but he, he recovered from that, hit another shot, uh, and then went down and took uh, another shot from the corner. And that's when this big stiff of the centre came out and did the, the old two-step closeout, dare I say, the completely unnatural closeout. And I can tell you the thoughts that go through a Spurs fan's mind when he lands on Kawhi's foot and Kawhi's ankle goes and Kawhi's out of the game. So the first thing is, well, we said, that's a dirty play. That was intentional. How do we know? Because we saw it for years with Bruce Bowen. We knew the play. So then you think, well, how much right do we really have to get upset about this, given that the Spurs were known as probably the dirtiest team, or one of the dirtiest teams, if not the dirtiest team, in the NBA in the mid-2000s, Bruce Bowen was certainly the most dirty player in the NBA. So then, of course, Warriors go on a run, 18-0 run. Spurs sort of lose their minds for a little bit. They did steady well uh, and then you know couldn't get a rebound at key moments down the stretch and end up losing the game by two. Becomes clear Kawhi's uh, ankle's pretty seriously injured. And then... Um, the series is pretty much over from there. So where I sort of ended up after obviously the, the initial anger of it to see it, you know, the the best player in our team, arguably the second best player in the NBA taking out, particularly when he was as dominant as he was, I just sort of thought, look, don't pretend that something is not. Like, I had people try and argue, including your good self at one point, that it was inadvertent. And I just thought, well, look, my, my retort to them always was the same. Look, have, have you played basketball? Because if you play basketball, you understand that is not a natural close. And I've heard players, including Mike Conley, talk about this afterwards. And they said, look, that's, that's been outlawed for a number of years. There's an unspoken rule between players that that's not the sort of play that you come out with. So I guess just accept that it was... It was a deliberate play. I mean, particularly given that Kawhi had just done the ankle as well. It was a dirty play. It's obviously unfortunate. Um, but I guess he acknowledged the two things, that the Spurs would have won that game by double figures more than likely. It would have been a really good series. Warriors probably still win, but who knows. Um, and just sort of say, to, to me, it's a tainted victory for the Warriors. And yes, there's been other tainted victories in the past in the NBA, one of the famous ones, of course, 2007 Spurs Suns, which I know is close to your heart. Um, so it's happened before, and it'll happen again. But don't try and pretend this Warriors team, this juggernaut that the Spurs could never have gotten close to. And, uh, you know, I, I did note with interest that after the game, the Warriors were all like, oh, no, don't don't say Zaza's dirty. That's a terrible thing to say. And we we know that wasn't dirty, and we know this in the social media. And then there was just utter silence from them for the next few days, apart from a few of their lackeys in the media, sort of scrolling through screen by screen to see any dirty plays the Spurs might have done um, through the same series. So I think once players saw it, they knew um, what the story was. Then of course you had Pop's big rant, and most players. I've been interested to sort of hear people's take on that because obviously there was an element of hypocrisy with it, with Pop, the fact that Bruce Bowen did it for so many years and now Pop's going off about it. 
Um, and players sort of reading between the lines of what I've seen from some players, including, as I said, what I heard Mike Conley say to Zach Lowe, is it's more like, well, look, when Bruce Bowen was doing it, he, he was the worst offender, but he wasn't the only offender. And it wasn't completely outlawed from the game. Now it is completely outlawed. Now it's completely a no, no, you don't do it. Um, and that's why it's a bit more unacceptable um, for, for Zaza and the fact that, obviously, you're losing your best player. And as Pop said, we're in a situation where build up 82 games plus two rounds of the playoffs. You build up playing a certain style of basketball. You want to try and... You're beating the best team in the NBA. You're beating them handily. You know, and as Pop said, it's pretty cool you go into a game like that. And then you lose your best player to a play like that. And I can certainly understand the frustration and the anger um, from Pop. But I also understand the other side where people say, well, look, the Spurs weren't adverse to doing it themselves, so there's a little bit of karma element to it. But all I ask people to do is don't pretend it was something it wasn't. It was, it was, it was deliberate, and to me it's, a, it's just a victory that the Warriors really shouldn't have to have a lot of pride in. Take it, um, move on to the finals, and, and hopefully we'll see them again down the track with a healthy... Kawhi. Um, and apart from that, look, for me, not much analysis of the series. It was, it was over from that point. I guess you can talk a little bit about Lamarcus Aldridge not showing up from that point. And um, some of the young guys that played okay for the Spurs. But apart from that, there's not a lot that I can say. But interested in your thoughts, Daz. Um, now that I've had my little rant about, uh, about Zaza and the uh, and the infamous play, but what, what, what's your sort of thoughts on it, um, especially now looking back after the series already over? I think it was 86-87 when we started 14-0. and 0. And, um, and by we, I don't mean the Bucks. I mean <laughs> my club team. And I played in the club team, and I was, uh, well, I probably think I was Bradley Beal, I was probably more Della Vadova, but I could shoot, right? I was the fast guy who could shoot. But I wasn't a very good defender, right? And so Coach Eckhart had coached, literally coached me when I was defending um, more athletic players, is don't let them land clean. And so this is not a new thing. So don't let them land clean means when if you got a more athletic player who's going up over the top of you, get your hips kind of into them. And kind of quick pivot when he comes down off his jump shot, he might land awkwardly. But at at worst, you've got to you put your ass into him. He's almost on your back, and you've you've perfectly boxed him out. Sort of take him out of the play. Number one, take him out. One, dissuade him from shooting jumpers over the top of you again. So you force him baseline or force him to defense. Number two, you take away his ability to offensive rebound. And number three, if he's not lying on the ground because you haven't let him land clean. He's not going to be very good on transition defense. So there was multiple benefits to, quote, not letting him land clean. So you're right in acknowledging that whether it's Bruce Bowen, it's not just Bruce Bowen. So, yeah, the Spurs were dirty and the hip check and Bob Horry. Yep, get all that. But this is not this is not a San Antonio um, conversation. This is a an aspect of basketball that's been around since basketball's been played. Again, even in the. You know, the Madison suburb communities in Wisconsin in the mid-80s. It was don't let them land clean. So as to that specific aspect, not new. Um, 
it's not new. And so where one lands on this conversation is more about one's what does one value in watching watching sport? Do you is it win at any cost and push all boundaries and push all limits of the rules and grab every single angle one can to win championships, which has mostly been Pop's mantra. And similarly, the teams I have always loathed in the NFL, like the Seattle Seahawks, who will commit penalty after penalty after penalty, will uh, consciously commit foul after foul and just force the referees to make calls. They'll literally take out the knees of kickers and force you to make a call, right? And they go, they go, we're just trying to win, you know? We're just trying to win. So it depends on where one lands with your sort of, quote, morality of, you know, should the game be played like cricket, where every every rule should be synced, you know, complete sanctity and nary should a, a disparaging word be cast against thine opponent, or is it, right, is it European football where you can fake broken legs to get penalty kicks in a one-nil game and you never earned it, so... Um, where do I land? It almost doesn't matter. Um, I watched the play again and again. Yeah, Zaza ran right underneath him with his left foot, right? Zaza planted his left foot, which I didn't see in real time, Daz, when I thought it was inadvertent. Zaza planted his left foot and pivots to the outside. Mm. That was definitely 100% deliberate. Um, Draymond Green laughed when his interview and refused he kind of joked, you know, we all know it was deliberate. It's, it all just comes down to where does one land on the morality scale. So as that's where it goes on the issue. As to the as to the play itself, I don't know. What I saw was not quite 2013-2014 Spurs perfection, but it was close. That first, you know, the first half and the first four or five minutes of the third quarter that of, of game one before the before this before the the Zaza incident was near perfection. The ball moved crisply, rebounds were attacked. Um, God, believe it or not, Draymond Green was getting beat in the post. Right, Paul was taking him to the post and and scoring over him, and David Lee was scoring on on Draymond. Right, so I'm like I I saw kind of everything working. I saw Kawhi doing what you suggested was dominating possessions or Golden State would get a little 6-0-8-0 run and he'd bang, bang, hit a couple of shots and suddenly they're back up by whatever, 12, 14, 16. And so I have 100%, not even 99%, 100% confidence San Antonio wins game one if Kawhi is healthy. Um, that's how good they were playing. Um, but they didn't. Right, and so I kind of go, fuck, you know, mm. I, I, where do I land? I think Golden State probably still wins the series. And I now say that going, just thinking back to 2014, which I know you know far more intimate, intimately than me, but I go, that Heat team was probably kind of close to as good as this Warriors team, and they got so blatantly, uh, completely out-executed could San Antonio have kept it up for four games? I'm not sure. Um, but um, it, it, I can see the side of the San Antonio Spurs fans feeling a little bit robbed, right? You feel a bit of sense of injustice, which is probably right, that you didn't get a chance to see this. You know, maybe they found the magic. Maybe they had the plan and they were executing their plan and they go, holy fuck, this is working. 
So they kind of just go, we found the magic potion, and now you've taken it away from us, which I I get a sense for what Pop was saying afterwards. And that's that, that bittersweet, not even sweet, sorry. That's that bitter, bitter taste of, you know, it wasn't like they were down 20 and Kawhi got hurt. They were up 20 and playing some magical ball when he got hurt. So I can totally empathize with the, this was ripped from you, sort of like, yeah, this is, I'm sure it's happened before if I could think of 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 other examples, oh, but it's... I don't um, think it's ever happened like this. I mean, in terms of West Conference Finals, one team's just dominating, and the best one of the best players in the NBA just gets taken out on a clearly dirty play, and that's where I think it is a little bit... No. I, I can't... I, my, maybe it has happened, but I just my, can't... My par- no, my parallels... Actually, I was going... My parallels are probably more NFL. You know, Carson Palmer blows an ACL in the you know AFC Divisional Championship. David Carr blows an ACL. It's like, like I just mean injuries to your super superstar player right when it matters most. It does happen, but you're right. The the intentional, the horrible thing, right? It's intentional, but totally not illegal. That's where this. It's an unwritten rule. You don't you let players land clean. Right. Um, that's for me again. What if I hadn't been coached by? I, I'd never. I failed to mention our coach was a dick. He was a. He was like the. You know, we're a small town. We just happened to have an amazing basketball team. He was the. You know, he ran the bank. He was made of money. His son was a spoiled brat, and our coach was a bit of an asshole. But he <laughs> he had money and let us play amazing club ball, and we, you know, but sort of like oh. Don't let them land clean. Like what? That's not how we're being coached, you know. So here's my two coaches back then. Were uh, do you know Dick Bennett? Right, Dick Bennett, who is a, a Wisconsin disciple coach. His son, Dick Bennett Jr., coaches at University of Virginia. Malcolm Brogdon's alma mater. So Dick, a Dick Bennett protege, coached in my in my school in um, in Wisconsin. So we were coached on like almost like 1950s, you know, George Mikan you know, team style defense and, and, and play um, this just almost clinical perfection. And then my club team was don't let them land clean. You know, it's almost <laughs> like, you know, it was like Mike Tyson was our you know, sort of our coach. But uh, anyway, I wildly, wildly digress from, um, from what must've felt like a, a complete fucking kick in the balls, but you probably would have lost anyway. Kawhi's not really severely hurt. You know, TP has been out, and I sort of go, if you're gonna, if if a little bit of San Antonio karma is gonna come back, maybe this is the way to have it. He didn't blow his ACL, right? You know, it he sprained his ankle. Here's the frustrating yeah. thing, I guess, for the Spurs because I'm not saying it's not frustrating. I'm just saying, of all the universe of shit, think about Clippers fans, man. You know, think about oh, exactly. the fucking amazing Bulls fan when Derrick Rose blew his ACL. I mean, that's what I mean. Superstars. KD in you know in 2013, you know. Um, anyway, there's been lots of superstars. Thing is, yeah. The Spurs sort of went into this. They must have been thinking: Is this style of basketball? Is this able to win? Is this able to beat the Warriors? And now they don't know. So they get all the way through playing this season, all the way through them first two rounds, and they come out of the season going. We really have no we're right. no closer to the truth of whether this style of basketball is way to beat Golden State, or because I think they already know they can beat Cleveland. Whether they would beat Cleveland, I don't know. But they know they're right <clears> there <throat> with Cleveland. Can they beat Golden State? 
Now we don't know. So maybe if Kawhi doesn't get injured, they go on and lose in five. Maybe they lose in six. And they go, all right, we know where we're at now. We know how far we are away. They now end the season thinking, maybe we've left one on the table here. You know, that, that is possible, even though it's it's probably unlikely. And they know they maybe they need to improve. But the question, I guess, for them is, do we need to improve within the game plan we're doing at the moment? Or do we need to go in a separate direction and start going a little bit pace and space ourselves, get more three-point shooting out there, etc. So that's, I think, where the real frustration lies from the San Antonio point of view, to look at it and think, now this is a bit of a wasted season for us because we're not sure the direction we need to go in for next season and whether this team playing this style of basketball can actually beat the Warriors. Um, and I think that's going to be the fascinating questions in the off-season because now you've got Paddy Mills, you've got Jonathan Simmons, um, you know, they've got some decisions to make to some extent with Power Gasol. I know Power's got a, a player option, but the Spurs seem to have ways of getting players to do what they want to do in free agency rather than the other way around. So there's a few different directions they may be able to go, um, but now they may be second-guessing themselves as to what they want to do. Because I thought the other interesting thing about the Houston series was the way the Spurs beat Houston. You know, they, they, they stayed big. I mean, after game one, when they got absolutely towed up, someone said to Pop, are you going to go small? And he said, we, we played big against Houston every game this year and we're going to continue to do it. And they did it against Golden State as well. And, you know, the, the prevailing knowledge, or the prevailing view, I should say, within the NBA at the moment is you've got to try and play this small ball, but you're never going to beat the Warriors trying to play small ball. So maybe the only way to beat them is to play bigger and bully them a little bit. And But you've got to hit. You've got to execute it to 100%. That's what they well, did in game one, and that's what's so difficult to execute at that level for four games in a series is very difficult. Whereas the Golden State can have a bad game and beat the Spurs. The Spurs can't have a bad game and beat the Warriors. And that's that's where it becomes well, very difficult. Look, I can see I can see that and I can see like, okay, we didn't get to we didn't get to test this out and it feels like we've left ourselves maybe no better off because we didn't we didn't learn whether or not this method works or not because of Kawhi's injury. And that is but I go, I I don't think I don't think Buford and Pop think that way though. Far be it for me to say it to a, a lifelong Spurs fan, and and why I say that though is because you know what, there's also small sample size shit here, right? There was that was 24 minutes of basketball, exactly, right? Yeah. And, and Golden State didn't fucking play great. They had a few days rest. I forget how long. It wasn't long, but they had four. I think four days rest before that game. They weren't exactly they weren't exactly sharp, um, and but they got sharp. And the instant Golden State got sharp, it was blood in the water. And so um, it did so happen to coincide with Kawhi going out. So I hear you, but I also have a belief that kind of, I think they probably think longer term, when I think about their decisions, are probably more about where you went secondly, is what to do with this roster, less so about style of play. I think Pop's got his, he's got too much invested, don't they, Daz? I mean, they've got... They've got the play. They play the way they play, right? What I'm saying is, I suppose, they can look at, are we going to try and build a small ball lineup? Players that can play in a small ball lineup that can potentially go for Golden State, just even if it's for short periods. 
Well, we continue to get stay big, and that's where I think I think the Spurs thought they were a real chance in this series, and that's where I think Pop was so pissed because I think they genuinely thought they were a chance of beating the Warriors. Well, it depends. That's either a dumb question or it depends on how they answer that question. Because look at how, look at how Indiana answered that. Larry Bird came out specifically and said, "We need to go small. We need to go fast." Then hires fucking what Frank Vogel and there you go. Good luck, Monte Ellis. Okay, Monte plays small ball. So if you answer a a good question with a dumb way in a dumb way, it might get you the same result. Right, so they go if they go and pay Patty Mills five years, eighty million, and I go, you fucking idiots! You know, you've just you've just killed yourselves. But if they answer quote small ball in the, if they answer that question with, well, we need small players who are faster, I think they failed. Where I think they need to go, I don't think this is a new idea. Is they need to go where they need to get perimeter defenders, make it harder for Golden State to do what they're awesome at. Golden State's so goddamn deep and so many people can shoot from 28 feet, get people who help prevent 28-footers from going in. Because I think they're going to get enough offense from from Kawhi. Their system of offense is don't fuck with that, right? The the, the interchangeable parts allows them to play 9, 10 deep in the playoffs. Don't mess with their system of offense, which is inside out. So that's why I thought if LaMarcus Aldridge can follow an Eric Spolstra, um, Dion Waiters, James Johnson off-season program and do some goddamn fucking sit-ups and LaMarcus Aldridge gets in fucking shape. I'm not. I'm actually not joking. If he could play half as hard as the Miami Heat players play, he could be a very, very effective, very effective, right, to kill them with wide-open 14-foot jumpers. And he can back down Draymond. He can shoot over Draymond. He can shoot face up 17 footers. I mean, an, a self actualized Lamarcus is awesome with a Kawhi and a Patty Mills and enough interchangeable offensive parts that if their key to winning is finding finding whomever this is, the finding wing defenders. I don't know who those players are. Is it Jonathan but that's Simmons? I mean, that maybe. Was, maybe that maybe, man. could have yeah. been answered with Kawhi on the, on the court as well. And maybe. That's where I go. I think Pop. So I don't think they're going to go crazy. Oh God, we need to go get ourselves, you know, Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry, and you know, find eight ways to stretch four players and trade Lamarcus Aldridge for a future 2016 second round pick to clear. You know, they're not going to get triple point guard crazy, right? They're not going to go radically change their roster. They're going to do more something like, you know, what Kawhi Leonard's our point guard, and Jonathan Simmons our two guard. And suddenly our two best players are in our backcourt and play super big because, you know what, Jonathan Simmons can guard lots of ones and Kawhi can guard anybody. Yeah, I, I'm making that up, but I, I, they're more likely to go, how do we put our most lockdown defenders on, this, on the team without compromising offensive efficiency? Yeah, I guess the Something question like for them is what, are the, what assumptions do they make? Do they assume we would have actually been very close to winning this series had Kawhi not gone down? Or would the Warriors have rolled us regardless? And then we do you think that matters? I, I genuinely oh, I go, think, do you really? Well, they're trying to beat the Warriors. So they're, they're trying to build a style and build a team that beats the Warriors. So that's the barometer and that's the benchmark they wanted to test this team against. And in the end, they haven't been able to do it. Yeah, I hear you. So what, do you think, Ma- what, do you, well. 
Well, what do you think, Manu? But do you do you hear my point though about Lamarcus and having development from within? Or am I, you know, I'm he's been my punching bag. He's been lots I'll, of people's I'll punching bag. A little bit. I think it was very difficult for Lamarcus when you were up against one of the best defensive <clears> teams <throat> in, in NBA history, and that's not hyperbole. This is a really good defensive team in the Golden State, and you go in the game too, and they know what you're going to do. We're going to pound it to this guy down low, and they can just game plan for that. And the Spurs didn't really have a plan B other than maybe Marnie pull something, some magic out. Um, that, that was very, they just picked it off very easily. And Lamarcus's shot was a little bit broken. Now, whether that comes down to conditioning or not, I don't know. Um, but I'll defend Lamarcus a little bit. I mean, that I just don't, I think it was, he was asked to do too much because he played really well in the first two and a half quarters. He was brilliant. And then once Kawhi went off, he just fell off a cliff. So I'm not sure internally what their sort of thinking is about Lamarck's and where he's at at the moment. I think I was more, it's a fair point about game two and beyond, but I was more, you know, what, what he did or didn't do against the Grizzlies and Rockets. He looked like a, he looked like a, yeah, but then game I don't six know. against the Rockets, he was, he was fantastic. So he did, he nailed shots. Yeah. So I, 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 know, I know, which I think you and I both talked about before is in a way, funnily enough, more function of Pop's coaching. Yes, give Marcus, he, he, he nailed shots. He did. When I go, but, but the confidence was so low in him. That's why my Pop's an amazing coach. They just kept feeding him. Said, fuck it, we're going to bring your confidence back. So anyway, I, the interesting kind of questions will be around, I still believe the guy needs to get fitter. If he wants to play longer, play harder, he's yeah, soft. Question. He, he'll need to do He's some got weight to, yep. but... If James Johnson and Deion Waiters can do it, anyone can do it. Well, Tim Duncan, so for... that's how Tim Duncan uh, elongated his career, uh, by just losing a few pounds. Not that he was ever carrying excess pounds, but he changed his body shape. I mean, he lose a little soft, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, he, he sort of changed his body dynamics. Is, it might not be the best word, but sort of the, the shape of it overall. Um, so he wasn't putting as much pressure on his knees and things like that. Yeah. So maybe Aldridge needs to to look at that sort of um, that sort of thing. Let's quickly but, before we sort of yeah. oh, unless you had another point there. I was going well, to I would just I mean if we want, I just finishing the post post mortem on the Spurs, and this is maybe a conversation more for July. But I'm I'm really interested in what do you think happens? What do you think they'll do with Manu and Mills and? Will they well, look at like uh, the new not player option to come back? They'll, they'll let Manu do what he wants to do. I get the feeling he was thinking about coming back, and then he got this big great farewell today. And yeah, start, and he sort of said after the game, "I feel like everyone wants me to retire, but I don't think he sort of feels like he wants to retire." So I think it's an interesting dynamic at the moment. So. Um, yeah, I'm really not sure, and I honestly don't think he's sure whether he's coming back or not. Um, if I had to stake something on it, I'd say he probably retires, but uh, I'd be interested to see, because the Spurs certainly won't tap him on the show. I mean, he played great again in the playoffs, um, generally, and, and he did as much as what you could expect a 39-year-old to do, and probably more, actually, um, than what you would expect from a guy that age, um, including a great game himself in Game 1 of the, the Western Conference Finals. So, Paddy Mills, I, I can't see Paddy coming back. I just don't think they'll overpay Paddy. Um, I think they like DeJounte Murray's uh, development, and I think they'll, they probably feel they can pick up another point guard in free agency 
as well as Paddy's played, I don't think that, I think he'll get bigger offers elsewhere. So he'd have to accept the pay cut to stay in San Antonio, would be my feeling, and I don't think that will happen. I think Simmons is the interesting guy. Um, and we already sort of touched on him, whether there's already talked the Nets are going to throw a big godfather off at him. Um, I, don't, I don't like that move for the Nets at all, or for Jonathan Simmons. Um, I think buyer beware, don't ask him to do too much. And, and Pop's the expert at that, sort of looking at the player and saying, I don't care what you can't do, I only care about what you can do. Um, and the guy's not a great shooter, I don't think he's ever going to be a knockdown shooter. But he attacks the rim with ferocity and he can defend the perimeter. And that's what they ask him to do um, night to night. And he, and he can hit at the occasional three, but he's not a high-volume three-point shooter, and I don't think he ever will be. Um, so I'll be interested to see, because I like Simmons on the Spurs roster. I'd actually like him on a team like the Grizzlies, maybe. I think he fits their sort of culture, the way they want to play. But um, a team like the Nets, you just wonder, well, what are they going to do with him? How's he going to fit in there? Are they going to ask him to be a starting shooting guard and score 20 points a game? I don't think that's, that's going to be his future. So yeah. I'll be interested to see what happens with him. As I said, they can maybe restructure Powell's deal. They can maybe restructure Tony Parker's deal, make a little bit more, um, give themselves a little bit more flexibility uh, with free agency um, and bring someone else in. I mean, I, I hear Chris Paul's name thrown about a bit. I, I can't see that happening. I think that's a pipe dream. Um, but there's a few interesting players out there um, I think this is Dwayne Dedman's also a free agent. I'll be interested to see what happens there. He didn't play much in the playoffs. So there's some question marks to, to be answered um, for the Spurs in the offseason, without a doubt. So my um, my snapshot on Jonathan Simmons is he scored in double-digit points nine times this year in the regular season, right, between January and April, and then scored in double figures 10 out of 11 games in the last 11 in the playoffs. He didn't do much against Memphis, obviously, but then five games against Houston, obviously all four, he played huge roles in, in Golden State. So I go, he could, guy couldn't leave on a greater high, mm-hmm. but he, he just reminds me of poor man's Damari Carroll. If you pay Jonathan Simmons $50 million, you're going to be, you're going to be depressed. I think he's a, he'd be an awesome three year, 20 mil. But that's if you go about, beyond, that's about yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, if that's someone goes beyond that, then buy good goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. No, I yeah. don't think you'll get more than that. I think you'll get about a three-year, twenty-one mil. Does that feel about right? Yeah. Um, What's he's, well, he's, my last... he's not that young. People think he's yeah. young. He's twenty-seven, so he'll be twenty-eight next year. I mean, that's yeah, he looks old, young. But looks fresh. Yeah. He's, he's old. The other player, I'll just a quick mention. We love our random plus-minus figures. Um, this Beyond Mahimi. No, Bryn Forbes was plus 13 today in 24 minutes in a game the Spurs lost by 14, which was quite amazing, I thought. And and he played okay in spot minutes. So he probably earned himself a contract somewhere in the NBA next year. Um, I don't think it'll be at the Spurs, but I'm sure some yeah. was watching that and saw that today. So with, with the finals, it's, it's pretty clear it's going to be Warriors-Cavs at uh, this stage. With apologies to any Celts fans out there listening. Um, I was sort of looking forward. I don't want to get too delve too deep into this series at the moment, but my sort of initial thought, I, I feel a little bit like Lance Hendrickson at the moment. If I can uh, look back on that cinematic classic, Alien versus Predator, and the, the, the tagline <laughs> of whoever wins, we lose. Because that's how I feel at the moment. I just have no enthusiasm for either of these teams. I think they've 
they, they don't even play that great of matches generally when they play together. So on paper, you think, look, if they both bring their A game, we might have an all-time classic finals series. But even though last year went seven games, they were just they were seven awful games of basketball. Were they awful? Well, they were. What, what games stood out to you? Was there one memorable game that you can that you can think of? I mean, game seven was close, but it was not good basketball. Um, but I guess the yeah, the the basketball is actually overshadowed by the story of the comeback, right? So it wasn't the story wasn't the basketball. The story was the contrast, right? Which is why I probably found more more interest in it because these two teams play diabolically opposed basketball. Yeah, okay, Cleveland shoots more threes than they have before, but right, their styles of play are dramatically different. Um, so no, it wasn't poetic. It wasn't Lakers-Celtics of the 80s, right? But the, the drama... Um, yeah, but there was no I guess that's what game I, drama. The games were over in the third quarter. Most of the games were just done. It was just... Was there any game decided by single digits other than game, game seven? Game seven? That, well, of course, I remember it was. was a blowout. So it was like, where, where's the drama? There's drama in between games, but Golden State were coasting to a victory until Draymond decided to punch LeBron in the nuts. And then... Well, then ironically, Draymond played the, the game of his career in game seven, and no one else showed up, and right. Steph looked tired, and Steph looked scared, and Steph looked tentative, and Steph looked afraid, and Steph looked like he was about to grow a prepubescent transgender beard, <laughs> which, oh, he has done, hasn't he? What the f- is? What is that? Oh, God, you might need Why to bleep that. Grow a beard? I didn't either. Oh, well, I think they should investigate him for HDH. So, look, you know where I stand. I go... I couldn't have hated LeBron more as a as a Cavalier. I couldn't have disrespected him more for the public humiliation of the taking talents of South Beach. And I couldn't have demo- just deplored his existence more with him being second fiddle banana boat to Dwayne Wade and he's meant to be this great player, right? Mm. I fucking ab- I abhor, loathe LeBron James. And then what's happened is what's happened is maybe this is because the I don't know, rising tide and sinking ships or some metaphor about how maybe it's just because everyone else is shit. But what I see in LeBron, and I actually don't mind things like in the Toronto series, right, that the the alley-oop off the backboard, right, when it's 10-4 to in the first quarter of game one, the utter disrespect for his competitors, and then even better, is turning his back on Kelly Olynyk. Do you know this play? Dipsy doo, loot doo doo. He's like, he could have been having a fucking cigarette, right? And goes and just kind of, all right, I'm going to score two points now. So I kind of feel in this era of lack of fight and lack of toughness, and what's happened to the, at the same time as LeBron sort of kind of gained respect in my estimation, the whiny, bitching, entitled, Oh, Steve is Steve, the bitching, whiny, everything coming from Golden State. Maybe that happens when you're a champion. Maybe that happens when you win 73 games. Maybe that happens when you set all-time records for, you know, point differential. Maybe that's a natural occurrence to teams who are so fucking good at the basketball. But they're fucking, God, 
Like, and they're not villains because Kevin Durant went there. They're villains because they're fucking unlikable pricks and they're whiny fucking bitches, right? Sorry, bleep, bleep, bleeping bleeps. So, no, the games weren't great, but I am interested in one badass top two, top three all-time badass motherfucker in LeBron. Now he's the he's the target. He's, right, D- Golden State has revenge. Like, ooh, what's revenge with transvestite beard and three-pointers? What's that like? What's that revenge like? Ooh, what is it? Are you know? So I go, what's revenge like for you? LeBron brought revenge last year when he completely demoralized your 73-9 and season in three games. He single-handedly said, I'm better than the entire your entire franchise. And so, no, those games weren't great, right? But the big story was, holy shit, this guy can fucking, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Predator just kill everyone in his path. And I go, for the first time in my life, I went 180 and said, I actually respect the way he annihilated a 73-9 and team. Given how much courage I've seen from insert team here, Houston, Toronto, Boston, given how much courage and fight I've seen from 10 NBA teams with the combined payroll of $2.5 billion, I kind of like what I'm the anticipation of LeBron going to battle as the target against Golden State. Doesn't that, I know you, I know you're, I know where the Spurs are at, but I go, if that doesn't excite you, um, no, look, I'll tell you where I'm at. I'm a little bit like Cosmo Kramer. I'm, I'm, I'm like ice. If I don't like you, that's it. It's over. And, and when LeBron did the decision, that was it for me. I thought, I'll never, ever go for this guy. Just, it can't happen. Right? So, I Daz, had they two were seven. That point. They were 73 and 9 and up 3-1. And he said, fuck you. Yeah, and I was Didn't, going for the Warriors. I wanted the so Warriors was I. To win that series. I was screaming with you and I was screaming with Cram that day. I was there. But I well, couldn't. I, I just look at this stage. I'm sort of leaning towards the Cavs, but I just cannot get excited about seeing this. I want to. Yeah, no. Look, fair enough. It's like if that's just, if my parallel is watching the Patriots and the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Exactly. I want it's everyone. I want. The I want them all to die in a car fire. I really do. And a car fire after having been diagnosed with cancer of the urethra at the very end of your willy. Then. <laughs> and then, well, but then you've got the, the Warriors peacocking around after one of the cheapest victories in the history of the Western Conference Finals. So when I had to go and sit oh. through that, I'm just sitting there going, well, you know, what do you do? I mean, to their credit, I guess they were a little bit more humble after they saw the tape of what did happen in game one. No, they weren't. Um, oh, I think they humble. were, no. The, the, the PR guy, I read a story of the PR guy, the Warriors actually pulled him aside. Um, yeah, it's fair enough to, to celebrate the victory. I didn't think Look, manufactured that. humility. My my point, you've just reminded me about the thing I, I, I now hate officially the most about Golden State is, what? What is this? Where they get this special, Draymond goes to the booth with Mike Wilbon and whomever, and they, they talk about how great he is and how great everyone is and how great everything is. And it just is like this group fellatio of the entire franchise. And Draymond's just 
you know, whatever. He's just playing it up. And I go, that was the most Gen Z, you know, yeah, social that media. In that happened in Miami for years. As did well. it too? It did. Oh, no doubt. No oh, doubt in Miami. God. So, you sit in a booth and get filleted by the announcers. And maybe that's because it, that was a fucking ESPN game, which has lost all credibility. But anyway, that, that sort of, you know... The celebration after a common victory that well, kills me. A cheap victory. That's what it was. Yeah, cheap. Was, even uh, yeah. I tried to rein it in before. Um, yeah. So look, I, as I said, I, I can't get excited about either of these teams. I don't like. I don't like the way they carry themselves. Um, I, I don't even know. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. Do you have to root for someone, or do you can just watch it and, and hope for a good game? Look, I like if you're the feeling the same way I am about the NFL, where when the Packers lose, I can't. I want everyone to die. <laughs> everyone, fuck off. Uh, I don't care. Like I, I want Tom Brady to be awful, and I want Matt Ryan to be. I, I want everyone to be awful, right? So you know, I, I don't care. Well, so if you're in that zone, I totally respect it. I, no, I respect well, it. That's I where you're say, at. If these two teams are going to win, okay, you've you've peacocked around the whole year. You've yeah, you know, everyone's pissed us off talking. You know, Warriors, Cavs, Warriors, Cavs, Warriors, Cavs. Okay, well, show us your best basketball in the finals. Don't give us these fucking disgraceful games that we've seen. Thirteen games of complete and utter shit from both of these teams. Like, show us your best basketball. Make it worth the wait. If they put on seven classic games, you might look back and say, "Well, you know what? It was an underwhelming playoffs, but it was worth it." to see great basketball at the end. So let's just hope, I guess, that basketball's the winner and that we don't see these games where one team gets up by 10 in the first quarter and the other team puts the cue in the rack and starts thinking about game two or game three or whatever or having rest, you know. So, I don't know. I just... It's it's not, a, as I said, not a series I'm looking forward to, but there is the prospect of some great basketball if both teams bring their A games and play out the entire game. Well, they need to bring their A games on the same day, right? And that's what I, that's maybe what part of what we've hinted at before is part of the inherent risk with the move to um, pace and space is that when you shoot 35 and 43 pointers per game, that by definition leads itself to a wide range of mathematical outcomes. And when you are cold, you are cold. And when you are not making three-pointers, i.e. Golden State, in the first half of Game 1 against San Antonio, when those shots do not go in, you do not score many points. And therefore, it lends itself to wild fluctuations. Mm -hmm. It so happens that Golden State has so many players to be able to make those shots, it evens out. And they often, more times than not, make you know 40% of their three-pointers, and therefore, mm -hmm. they win because three is more than two. So I go, that is a little bit of part of where the NBA is heading with so many three-pointers taken. So you're right. Those The last the games, the inter-games themselves, weren't great. The best we can hope for is two or three times when Cleveland is hitting shots and LeBron is breathing fire and Curry's hitting shots and, and Draymond's breathing fire. We can only hope that the the five or six critical players are all on at the same time, and I go, okay, maybe if we get that two or three times, it will be worth it. But So that's why I'm, I find the, because I hate 
hate them or am disinterested in equal measure or am just impressed with my own self to has I couldn't have hated LeBron more than any sportsman ever except for Tim Tebow. Um, and I kind of go, I actually now I'm like, how the, how is it? Is that how, how far Golden State has fallen? Or I just want the last guy with his giant bleep to smack him over the face with his giant bleep and go, I'm a bigger man than you are. I want fight. And I don't think I'm going to get fight. I always get fight from Draymond. Right. But you always get fight in like the, you know, he's the fat kid at the party and he's going to glass you in the eye sort of fight. Right. It's Draymond. When you get fight from LeBron, I'm like, that's pretty cool. So I just want, I want a fight. So I probably want to fight more than I guess I want, you know, 127, 125. I want, I want, uh, I want to fight. I want to see Tim Tebow turn up in the Cavs jersey in the first, the first game. See, see you really with, conflicted about what you're He's going to have – no, he's going to have a Golden State jer- jersey with a, with a little beard. <laughs> He'll have the Steph Curry beard. Oh, man. Why is he – does Steph Curry have a stylist? Seriously. Who lets him do this? Honestly. Uh, someone does know to take him. God, seriously. <laughs> well, someone sent the photo of the, the Israeli. Too much. Um, <laughs> the Israeli entrant for the Eurovision that won a few years ago, <laughs> and uh, the resemblance was uncanny. <laughs> Too much time in the cast room, I reckon, Steph. Man. Uh, All right. So, look, well, we might leave it there, Daz. Look, we, we, we might even push back. Next, next week we can do a finals preview, and then we might look at the All-NBA teams and the, the lottery, which happened uh, last week, if you're happy to do that. And then um, then we can yeah, look, look forward and get an actual prediction about the finals. We might wait till do that next week. Indeed, I'm sure we'll have infinite chats in between then. But um, have a good week, pal. All right, mate. Talk to you soon. Bye. Cheers, bud.